Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Helen Freer, and I'm happy to be joined today by Simon Ibbotson, our Head of Private Markets Fund Distribution at Julius Baer, and Michael Hornung-Morza, a Director and Member of the Julius Baer Private Markets Investment Team. So as you might guess, having introduced my guests, we're going to talk about private markets today and a few things that investors might like to think about when considering making an allocation to private market investments. Hi, Simon and Michael. Great to have you on the podcast today. Hello, Helen. Pleasure to be here. It's very nice to be here, Helen. Thank you. So I guess my first question then is, what do we actually mean when we say private markets? I think we often think of private equity when we hear private markets, but that's just one part of the asset class, right? Private markets really is a catch-all term for anything that isn't public. And private markets give access for clients to non-publicly listed assets and companies. Private equity is a segment of this. Um, You can also have private real estate, infrastructure, debt, or even natural resources such as timberland, I suppose. Um, And investments are made into assets usually through a fund managed by a dedicated private markets fund manager. And mostly these guys give the new owner of the company certain control and management rights, enabling the implementation of a value creation plan, which, by the way, always involves an exit. That's exactly correct. And so with regards to the the fund manager, um, I think it's important to note that, you know, there's a deep skill set and bench of experience required um, in order to source and then acquire deals of any type and then proactively manage them in their value creation phase up to the, the exit where you could have several different venues. I think we're going to go a bit deeper into the detail on, on those later. And, and that's exactly the reason why, you know, typically investors will, will seek exposure to private markets through closed-ended funds that are managed by these uh, well-experienced fund managers. And what type of companies is it then that tend to seek or even need private equity financing? Um Well, any company really that wants to run itself, I suppose, a company that's looking for a capital that's going to expand its business operations, allow it to buy another company. Traditionally, the public markets used to provide capital for companies. But now that there's a deeper, ever-deepening pool of private capital, many different companies seek private capital. Those from inception, really, through uh, their adolescent years, if you like, through growth phases, And even those that are being rescued, that have fallen onto hard times, they may take private capital to help fix them again. Think of Chapter 11, uh, for example, regulations in the United States. But there are different segments. Exactly. No, and as as you noted, I think it's very important to differentiate here between you know the maturity and stage of, of the underlying companies, which could then theoretically be called segments. So you know, companies suitable for private equity financing could be early stage or startup type companies, later stage or growth type companies who already have an existing revenue model who, who are generating revenues but are not profitable or, or in a, let's say, um, exorbitant growth phase. 
and then you have mature and profitable businesses and then you know moving over to what you know to companies that are financially struggling or more complex type situations uh, where outside capital is required um, and then if you if you look at these segments i think it's important to note that a venture early stage company will be more proactively seeking for outside private equity capital in order to fund their operational cash requirements or to expand their business activities whereas you know buyout companies more more stable type companies would would actually be be hunted down um, by private equity funds given the profitability of these businesses so you know there's really not a requirement of the current owner to to sell or or to raise outside funds so it's private equity managers who are approaching these these companies and have concrete business plans, value creation plans, maybe turnaround plans in order to improve profitability or grow out the business. And this is where a company owner might be thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to partner with this group of individuals or, or private equity managers and grow my business or potentially exit it to a strategic investor or the stock market. And how do they find each other then, the private equity investors and the companies looking for the private financing? Uh, well, look, the ecosystem of the private markets world is growing continuously. And private managers that have been in operations for 5, 10, 15, 20, 44 years, uh, perhaps. Uh, we worked with a business earlier this year that had been around for 44 years. You know, they know their industry very well and people who are seeking capital, business people, uh, corporates uh, will know of these managers, the managers can find them. So um, it's just really, it's a function of who you know. And the longer you're in the business, the better your network will be. Yeah, exactly. And part of the this network are traditional intermediaries, such as um, M&A bankers, placement agents, but could also be auditors or, or tax advisors who just bring bring together company owners and potential investors and can align interests. So in, apart from intermediated deals, and this is actually where, where private equity becomes very interesting, um, you have a lot of proprietary sourcing in the market. So basically, um, this could be fund managers that proactively are screening the market via databases um, or, or conferences or even online crawling tools for private companies and would approach them. Um, and then create binary kind of one-on-one -on -one type situations where they would show a company owner their value proposition and basically cut the intermediary out. And I think uh, this is especially the case in the more smaller end of the market. So because, you know, working with an intermediary on a deal for someone who's looking to sell, their company may also be quite expensive um, or, or quite, a, um, let's say, a long-lasting process. Um, so the proprietary sourcing market is actually a quite, if you look at the numbers of, of deals done, um, one of the, the larger parts of the market and where um, certain managers can really show an edge when it comes to sourcing deals. I guess there's a lot of due diligence required then before a fund manager would invest capital into a firm. With venture type companies, so again, maybe as a refresher, these are startup type businesses or early stage companies 
where companies have barely even started to sell their products or have uh, an existing stream of, of revenue. This is where the degree of information is, is actually um, quite shallow. So what managers are underwriting to is really the business model and the management team um, and the ability and, and competencies of the management team in order to execute on the business model. But um, if you look at a more mature buyout type deal, um, so again, buyout as a definition is a, is a stable and profitable business. You would have different streams of due diligence performed. You would have commercial due diligence, financial due diligence, legal due diligence, um, even technical due diligence, which has been a, an upcoming topic. And, and mostly these will also then be performed by various third parties. So thinking about the big four um, as an example, it's just important to note that dealmaking you know, as a result, includes a lot of heavy lifting and uh, time spent from all sides, really, in order to collect and gather the data and information, analyze the data, create insights, and then make an investment decision. Can you tell us a bit about the main characteristics of private equity and particularly how it differs from investments in public equities? Yeah. Um, you know, if you go and buy a share in Nestle today, you pay for it tomorrow. But in our world, you start with a capital commitment that is called incrementally over time as the fund manager identifies and uh, acquires an asset. And there is a fundamental difference, though, as well in our world that you will get your money back at some stage. I know that sounds an odd thing to say, but if you're investing in a public fund, the investor has to take the decision as to when they will buy, how long they will hold, and when they sell. Whereas in our world, the manager takes those decisions. When they will buy, when they will call capital, what they will buy, how they will run that asset, and when they will sell it, and at what price, hopefully, they're choosing. So it's a fundamentally different way of making investment. I quite like it because I think it lifts a bit of responsibility off the investor's shoulders, especially if we look at this year, we've seen markets in a terrible state. There's been a lot of um, anxiety, I'm sure, among investors and among their advisors as to what to do. Yeah, I think that's spot on and maybe reiterating on the illiquidity of the asset class. And we mentioned previously that investors would typically seek access or exposure via closed-ended funds. So just to give people a feeling of that, so the typical fund term would be 10 years and that would be split out into an investment period of roughly five years. I mean, that's the maximum um, we've seen in, in, the, in the past five years, investment uh, managers kind of deploying their capital more quickly. But it's basically the time they can take in order to deploy the commitments that, that you mentioned previously. And then you have the remainder of the fund life, which is really there for the value creation and the, the time that is required to exit Let's talk about the illiquidity aspect that you mentioned a bit more now. Saying an asset is illiquid sounds like a negative thing from an investor's point of view. But if an investor can afford to keep the money invested for a relatively long period of time, they, they would be rewarded for this illiquidity aspect. So it wouldn't actually be a negative then. Is that right? Short answer is yes. Um, they should be if they're investing with the right manager. However, you must note that most investors would not put 100% of their capital into private markets, but rather have a small or, or these days increasingly notable allocation to the asset class. In my experience, every 
client can tolerate part of their investment portfolio in longer-term investments. And I think the fixation of having a wholly liquid or actively tradable investment portfolio in the belief that such a portfolio is superior is, for me, a little misguided. So it's important to have a blend of public and private. And if I may add, the illiquid nature of this asset class is perhaps, for me, the most appealing aspect of private markets investing. So you just said that it can take a long time. What's the sort of time scale that uh, we're talking about for an investment in private markets usually? When can investors expect to see returns? Well, I would say about 95% of fund managers who raise new pools of capital uh, come out with a fund that you invest into effectively, limited partnership, uh, of 10 years. But within that time, there is the investment period where the managers will call the capital. But as I keep telling people, don't get hung up on the length of the life of the fund, that's not really important. What is important is the activity within that fund. And as Michael's just said, you know, it's usually about a three to five year period, but that really does depend on the strategy of the investments. I mean, if you were first round investor in Uber, uh, it took you 12 years to hit the public markets. That's because they were building a business from scratch. But if you're investing into a, a mature company that's being bought out by a large manager, he might just want to run that business, own that business for three, four, five years. So you start to get your money back relatively early on, actually, in the process. It's not tied up for the full 10 years. Let's talk about the current environment now. Are there any trends that you're seeing in the private equity space at the moment? Yeah, I think we've seen a a very positive trend in the the past decade, really. which has also been supported by the, the low interest rate environment um, that we've had really for the last 10 years. And so if you look at the fundraising activity globally up to COVID and even throughout COVID in 2020, and we've seen record volumes of, of funds being raised by, by these private equity funds um, with a peak in 2021. And then I think um, the, more, the more recent trend is that the volatility that public markets are experiencing at this time have, have led to investor uncertainty in, in general, um, which has had a, an effect, definitely an effect on private equity fundraising. But fundraising is still active. The, the year could be closing at a similar level to 2019, 2020. And again, uh, this is a, a long-term asset class and a fund that will raise capital today or, or in 2022 will be deploying this capital throughout the next three to five years. Um, so it's not um, basically thinking about it as investing in today's valuation. I'll just add something to that, if I may. Yeah, I read a stat that the first nine months of this year have seen the second highest capital raising on record, which is interesting because... You know, it's been an awful year, really, for investments, mainly. And to secure that much new capital, I think, is telling us something. What is it telling us? First of all, that a lot of existing investors, large investors, have had a lot of money returned in the last three to five years. And so they are reallocating it back, in a lot of the times, to the same managers that have just given them the money back. So there's a bit of recycling going on, and these managers are raising more capital, I think, because of what's happened this year. We've had a big change in asset values. And there is a contrarian nature about our fund managers in our business, that they invariably like to invest 
when prices are low, and they invariably like to divest when prices are higher. And there's a lot of cheap assets around there at the moment, out in the public markets especially. And my fancy is that I think there's going to be a huge amount of public to private transactions next year with all of this capital that's being raised. So when investors are thinking about their asset allocation then, why should they consider private markets? Well, um, uh, not investing in private markets today, in my view, is a very 20th century way of investing. I started 22 years ago promoting private equity funds in the days when nobody wanted to buy them. But it's changed now. The private pool of capital has got deeper. Uh, We see entrepreneurs tapping that more. We see managements of large and small companies tapping private markets. So I think it just makes sense. I mean, if you're not investing at all in the private markets, you're going to miss out on a huge amount of investment opportunities. Different types of companies at varying stages of their development. You know, it's a bit like when you hit the public markets, once you IPO, perhaps your best years are behind you as far as growth's concerned and investment returns. So I always encourage people, it's not just about private markets, it's about public as well. So have a blend. But I think some investors might think that they can't get access to private markets. What are your thoughts there? Is there usually a high minimum investment? Well, yes and no. The first thing I would say was, if you were going directly to a fund manager, they run their funds really for institutional clients, you'd probably have to pay a minimum commitment of 10 or $20 million. Whereas there are other providers and platforms these days that offer private equity investments for a lot less, you know, tens of thousands sometimes. What about the issue of transparency in the industry? I think there are some concerns um, around this. What's your take on that, Michael? So I think by nature, private equity um, has a certain degree of information asymmetry around it. So as um, noted previously, you know, there, there are no publicly shared or, or published quarterly reports and, and media coverage is, is lower, which can give certain fund managers, let's say, a certain advantage against their competitors, which can lead to alpha. Um, so returns in excess of either average private equity returns or even average public market returns. So, I, I, I mean, the transparency, yeah, by, by nature, by, by default is, is lower, but, but really it's more um, actually an advantage of private equity. I think there's a myth about public stocks and transparency of information. People have this idea that public shares are more transparent because they can see the price moving every day. And also, there might be a quarterly or certainly half-yearly report. Um, but there's only so much that the executives of a, of a publicly listed corporation can share, as far as data is concerned, especially if it's price sensitive. They've got to, you know, they can't say anything. Whereas in the private markets, if you are a, especially a, a large investor, there's a huge amount of information you can glean from the private equity managers, the owners of the company, They'll tell you lots of things, unless it's commercially sensitive. And then when thinking about investing in private markets then, what else would investors need to consider? Should they diversify within the private equity space as well? Well, maybe taking a step back, certainly they should diversify their investment portfolio full stop. So seeing private equity as one part of the portfolio and only in rare cases 
it should comprise a full portfolio. And then within private equity, of course, there's plenty of room to diversify. So as previously mentioned, we have kind of the venture capital space, then we have the growth space, we have the more mature buyout space and the distress space. So all of these segments are non-correlated with each other. You can geographically diversify. So there's, there's plenty of way to build up a robust portfolio that can perform throughout uh, market cycles and in the long run, which is what private equity is about. There's also another crucial component if you're looking to get exposure to private markets, and that is time. Um, we refer to the year a private equity fund makes its first investment as the vintage year, and the performance from year to year can vary. And we give these funds a label, vintage 2022, 23, 24, much like the label or the etiquette on a bottle of wine. Otherwise, it would get very confusing. So that is an element that we're always talking about. Spread the vintage risk. Don't go all in in one year with one manager, effectively. Okay, great. So we've discussed a lot today, but as a kind of summary then, the really key points to highlight are that private markets investments are definitely long-term investments and they are illiquid and it's important to be aware of that but they can be appropriate as part of a well-diversified portfolio. Would you agree with that or is there anything else that you would add before we wrap up for today? I'd agree with that apart from one thing. Um, Just the holding periods when you say longer term I think it's just their variable holding periods okay but certainly um, yes I agree with what you've said there. Great. Thank you very much, Simon and Michael, for your time and for the interesting conversation today. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. And with that, we conclude this edition of the Beyond Markets podcast. Thanks again to Simon and Michael for taking the time to speak to me today. And thank you all for tuning in. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this conversation and that you will join us again soon. Bye for now. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favourite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.